right. Good evening, LCM. Good evening. Tonight we begin our second session in the book of Esther. Amen. We're going to be covering chapter two. If you enjoyed last week's session, then you are sure to love this, this evening's session. Amen. It's nice to be coming off of a repentance service on Sunday. Amen to that. Because you're all right with God and we'll have a great time tonight. Huh? That kind of thing really helps to clear our vision so that we can see what Adonai is revealing in the text. It's amazing how getting sin out of your life clears your spiritual vision. It's also good to have a newfound respect for the effects of shalom in a singular family on the whole community. How a single family can affect Everybody around you. Mm-hmm. Did you guys enjoy session one in the book of Esther? Yes. Amen. In session one, we asked you to begin researching the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis. That's because there are important events that occurred between Esther one and Esther two. Now, as long as Zack Snyder and the movie 300 were not your primary resources, <laughs> we're sure that your lives were enriched by your studies. We're going to jump into a review that will serve to remind you of a few key details, but we're going to quickly further our historical and biblical narrative tonight because you're about to encounter the royal bride. Man, that's going to be beautiful. If you're not amazed with the parallels to eschatology and the practical applications of chapter 2, then let's just say plainly, you cannot be a serious student of the Bible. But we're confident of better things in your case. Yeah, yeah, we're confident tonight of better things for you guys. Now, you may remember that many people define Esther, define her name as Star, or maybe even Venus. I'm your Venus, I'm your fire. Abby loves that song. But this slide that we have for you right there, boom, will remind you of another possibility that we presented last week. So here are two of several that have Esther's name and the definition of her name meaning secret or hidden, as you can see up top. And on the bottom, her name means secret from Sathar. So this is of particular interest to us because we are uncovering many beautiful things that are indeed hidden from the typical popular and even mainstream teachings on this little but beautiful book. Come on. Let me read to you Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to to do. Amen. Now, we genuinely believe that the Father loves to show us his treasures that have been obscured over time through false presumptions. As we endeavor to peel back and remove those errors, we can all be confident that this book will continue to inform our lives in beautiful and practical ways. So last week, you became aware that both the books of Ruth and Esther should be seen in the light of Proverbs 31. We have a slide to remind you about this. Oh yeah. So Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, are in a chiastic structure. 
meaning verse 10 corresponds to verse 3, so on and so forth. But what was the unparalleled truth? Verse 23, the point that had no parallel was public respect for the husband. The book of Esther displays Mordecai's wisdom and counsel as the primary reason for Esther's shining actions. And conversely, Mordecai would have been lost to obscurity if it were not for Esther's implementation of his advice and counsel. The two of them worked together to bring about God's will on earth, and both of them were made glorious for it. That in mind, Esther is the epitome of Proverbs 31. Yeah. Proverbs 31, woman receiving public praise at the city gate for living in proper shalom with her male lead. It is also true that the book of Esther is similar to the book of Acts. It is common for people to refer to Acts as the Acts of the Apostles. But you learned that the reality is that the book records the Acts of the Holy Spirit, who is working behind the scenes and manifesting in the actions of the Bride of Christ. On a similar note, the hand of God is voiced in the advice and counsel of Mordecai, who is always behind the scenes, and the visible working of God is displayed in the actions of Esther. So as we get deeper into our study, it's nice to discover that the book of Esther reveals its own timeline, especially after we did Jeremiah. (laughs) None of the dates in this book are coincidental. In fact, that's not a kosher word. And it's going to become apparent tonight, and it will become apparent in the future weeks, that every single detail is put there by the deliberate design of God. For now, we want to just have you remember this slide. The reign of Xerxes is from 486 to 465 BC. The events that are occurring in the book of Esther extend over about a decade. That's defined in Esther 1.3, which is the third year of Xerxes' reign and is 483, and Esther 3.7, which is the 470 third year BC and is the end of Xerxes' 12th year. You may also remember that you had become familiar with the location of these events during our quite intensive studies in the book of Daniel. Esther is taking place during the Medo-Persian Empire and it is in Susa. So look at this next slide. This is a compelling and familiar slide for all of us in this room. The bottom right of the screen, you can see both Babylon and Susa circled. Those are their locations. Since the Persian Empire itself was vast, it contained multiple capitals. Multiples. Multiple capitals. Xerxes would spend spring in Persepolis, summers in Ecbatana, and autumn and winter in the warmer regions of Susa and Babylon. The Persian Empire also had complex road systems. It also had a rapid message delivery system. In addition to that, it had a central banking system. Quite simply, the Persian Empire was the most advanced, the most complex, and the most vast empire to have ever existed up to their time. Now far to the west, though, while this is all happening, Another power was beginning to emerge. But they were in relative infancy during this period of history. 
Of course, we're referring to the Greeks when we say this. So this next slide will remind you of the scope of the Persian Empire and the area of conflict with the emerging city-states of Greece. We have Susa in the east and Ionia in the west. Ionia was within the Persian Empire, but its inhabitants were largely colonists from the various city-states of Greece. There were multiple triggering events, but ultimately ambassadors from Athens proved to be a flashpoint in a rising conflict because they broke their word to the Persian Empire and violated the customary protocols of the day. Bad. This caused tensions to rise and eventually... Let me regain my spot here. And eventually lead to Greek aggression in the city of Sardis. The Persian Empire was larger and may have simply ignored the Greek breach of word and protocol, but could not ignore the sacking of Sardis. Now these events led to the Persian invasion of the Greek mainland under the reign of Darius Hystaspes and the famous Battle of Marathon. Say Marathon. Marathon. We covered that battle last week and will not retread that ground, no pun intended, but the effects of the battle on the conflict were between Western and Eastern cultures and are still being felt today. Now in the West, we celebrate the running of a 26.2 mile run and we call it a marathon. This is in reference to a messenger that brought the news of Nike or Greek victory. And you can imagine that the Persians didn't see it that way. On that note, our next slide is entitled Darius, the father of Xerxes. We're going to get a feel for how he felt about it. Mm -hmm. After the Battle of Marathon, Darius I was not done with his punitive plans for Athens. According to Herodotus, the Persian loss at Marathon only incensed the accommodated king even more. When the news of the Battle of Marathon reached Darius, son of Pistaspes, and king of Persia, his anger against Athens, already great enough on account of the assault on Sardis, was even greater. And he was more than ever determined to make war on Greece. So tonight, we will cover much of the subsequent history. But it is important for you to remember that the victors tend to write the histories that we read and that we celebrate as people. So true. Often those histories are highly slanted. Yeah. And may even distort your understanding of what the Bible itself is conveying. Let's talk about that for a minute. We'll give you some uh, background for it. This slide is called Victors Write the History. Persepolis, built two and a half thousand years ago. It was known in its day as the richest city under the sun. Persepolis was the capital of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, the largest empire the world had ever seen. But after its destruction, it was largely forgotten for nearly 2,000 years. And the lives and achievements of those who built it were almost entirely erased from history. Alexander the Great's troops raised the city to the ground in a drunken riot to celebrate the conquest of the capital, after which time in sand buried it for centuries. Now this led to negative historical depictions throughout the Greek writings. This book goes on to comment these early images were only exacerbated by Alexander the Great and his biographers who maintained a fiery hatred toward Xerxes for burning Athens. Alexander was not involved in the Battle of Marathon. He, he comes much later, 150 some odd years. 
He's not involved in any of the battles that we're going to be discussing tonight that occurred between Esther 1 and Esther 2. And yet, the battles that we're covering tonight were one of the motivators for him to attempt to erase Persian history from the world stage a century later. The rewriting of history, when combined with other cultural bias, forever marred the view of the Persian Empire in the Western perspective. All of you have been taught what a marathon is. Most of you own Nikes. Those things are marketed (laughs) in the West based on the battles that we're talking about. Nothing from the greatness of the Persian Empire is used to move your hearts today. That's because of cultural bias. Now, we talked about it last week, but we want to further the concept of cultural propaganda and bias with our next slide. Like many groups in modern-day Iran, Persian communities would spend the winter months tending to their herds on the plains and spend the hot summer months in the cool of the mountains. Makes sense, right? But for the Greeks, the Persians' nomadic lifestyle was a cause for mockery. Escaping from the summer heat was taken as evidence of Persian unmanliness. (laughs) That's prolifically portrayed throughout their writings. There's actually no other way to describe the slander of the Persians by the Greeks in any other terms than to say it was unfair. Do you really believe that it is unmanly to have multiple capitals suited to the climate variations in the region? Yes or no? I I don't either, but if you do, you should probably get rid of your air conditioner if you live in the South, right? How's that for cultural bias? You should probably, if you live in the north, get rid of your heater if you think that that's unmanly, right? A more informed view would be to admire the genius of the Persians for being able to make these adjustments while still being a complex and multinational culture. Guys, they were able to move their capital throughout the year while still maintaining their entire empire. That's genius. Our president couldn't do that today. He's not awake enough during the day for that to occur. (laughs) By the way, since we're sure that Zack Snyder's 300 was not part of your studies this week, we feel the need to point out that androgynous or even effeminate portrayals of Xerxes go all the way back to this kind of Greek character assassination. Xerxes was a Persian noble, and he was the king of the greatest empire to have ever been established up to that time. Yeah, let's talk about Xerxes' nobility. Look at this next slide. Thus, Xerxes was born of multiple noble lineages, a member of a revered Achaemenid family and direct descendant of Cyrus the Great himself, a strong connection in the Persian Empire. An exact date is unknown, but Xerxes was probably born around 518 BCE and grew up a prince in the Persian court, being trained and educated in the traditional manner. Now, when you are thinking of Xerxes, we all know what it is like to have a president far too old to be the leader of the free world. Have you ever considered what an awesome responsibility the same task would be for someone that is very young? That's why you're considering that 
in our current day and age, there's a growing number of Americans that actually admire Putin more than they do our own presidency. That's largely due to the man's iron fist and ability to both be engaged in warfare on a physical level as well as politics. The Persian youths were trained in warfare from the very beginning, as well as in tactics, as well as in logistics. They were baptized in what was required to lead later. Look at this next slide with us. So Xerxes' birth year is correct at 518 BC. Then as the dates follow, he was 28 years old when his father fought the Battle of Marathon. He was 32 years old when he became king of the largest empire in world history up to that time. 32. I want you to pause on that for a moment. <laughs> yeah. What 32-year-old do you know that is ready to lead a near-global empire? One that swallowed Babylon like it was a grape. Well, I can say this. I know a lot of 32-year-olds that I would not want in that. <laughs> he was 35 years old when the Vashti event occurs. Wow. He was only 38 years old during the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis. During Esther 2, he was 39 or 40 years old when he meets Esther. Wow. wow. Now consider this for a moment. Most of the Greek history that we've already established with you is highly slanted. It focuses on Xerxes between his 32nd and 38th birthday. This is only the first six years of his reign, and it's before he ever meets Esther. We find it interesting that Xerxes and his greatest achievements in his life were in the 15 years after he meets Esther. My God, sometimes meeting the right woman changes everything. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Look, Xerxes, Xerxes was not a failure. He, he's not a failure. Engage with this. This was taken from King Xerxes I, the life and legacy of the Achaemenid Persian Empire's most notorious ruler. That's the book this comes from. When studying Thermopylae, it's too easy to think of Xerxes' failure to take Greece as his defining moment and the beginnings of the collapse of his rule. Yet such a theory could not be further from the truth. Xerxes reigned for another 15 years wow. after returning home from Greece. And he did much of his best work in that time. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> well, he may not have taken Greece... He did successfully sack Athens. And that, that was his goal. And his consuming focus was subsequently broken. In other words, he was no longer interested in Greece. Something else captured his attention. Instead, he found a new campaign, now of architecture, and transformed the city of Persepolis into the jewel of the Persian Empire. Enriching yourselves from the cultural bias that you inherited will allow you to see beautiful perspectives that the Bible displays in the Persian Empire. So our next slide is entitled Invitations into the King's Presence. This is going to become very important to learn and understand about this concept. Admittance to the King did not come in any particular order or through any qualifications but was rather a matter of attracting attention and warranting an invitation. you remember that Vashti's offensive and rebellious behavior meant that she would be prohibited from ever entering the king's yeah. presence ever again. 
This was not the act of a rash or volatile man, though. This was rather the act of a king who was operating in a manner that was consistent with the Eastern culture of his time and the Eastern culture of the Bible itself. Any person, regardless of qualification, could draw near to the palace of the king. It was that person's actions, that person's passion, his persistence that needed to warrant an invitation by the king in order to approach and to come further. Isn't that similar to what we read in James chapter 4? I think it is. Listen to James 4, picking up in verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So humble, repentant behavior attracts the attention of Adonai, and he will come near to you and raise your station. Misreading Xerxes' behavior causes you to miss beautiful parallels to biblical descriptions of God. Mm. Thanks. Do you remember that last session? There was a Persian feast. Mm-hmm. Does that stick in anybody's mind? Oh, yeah. yes. So, keeping in mind what Peyton just said, as we read this next slide, look at how the king interacts with his people. Much of the king's socialization was spent with those who came to him for audiences, those who sought him out. Yet mealtime also included a massive number of courtiers, advisors, and friends, even up to as many as 15,000 guests. You thought hosting was hard. (laughs) All served on golden plates and in golden cups. So last session, we emphasized that the king spent six months throwing a feast to solidify support for an invasion into Greece. We told you that Persians preferred to motivate through generosity. Now you're seeing that the king met with those who displayed earnestness to meet with him. Those whose actions warranted a more personal meeting from the king. He did this with 15,000 guests at a time. Last chapter even emphasized the king's generosity in allowing them to drink whatever they desired from his wine cellar. Yeah. And in as much quantity as they wanted. As does that remind you of a particular passage? It reminds me. We're going to look at Psalm 36, verse 8 and 9. Psalm 36, verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house. That's the king's house, friends. <laughs> you give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Amen. So you engage with that. You can see that the Persian parallel is very similar to the biblical parallel. The only reason that we miss these kinds of beautiful parallels is our own cultural bias. Well, we shouldn't say really that that's the only reason. There is another reason. Some are just too immature in their own dealing with things like alcohol to be able to embrace the actual biblical imagery associated with it. You can not like it, but the truth is, is I'm just practicing now for what is going to occur at the king's table throughout the millennium. Hmm. So Xerxes' father, Darius, was defeated at Marathon when Xerxes was only 28 years old. His father had already begun to prepare for an even more massive invasion of Greece which was briefly put on hold due to a revolt in Egypt. Mm. And then finally, 
interrupted in the most profound ways an <laughs> unexpected death. Yeah. This meant that when Xerxes took the throne at 32 years old, he had other issues to deal with besides the loose affiliation of Greek city-states. I want to talk to you about those rebellions and pressures. Wow. Xerxes is 32 years old. He's ascending to the throne, and this is what he has to deal with here. Another serious rebellion broke out in Babylon shortly after Xerxes' ascension to the throne. Its origins are unknown, but may have been associated with raised taxes. <laughs> Maybe some, some people in here might understand. And that tends to cause rebellion. Yeah, rebellion, anger starts to come forth. I don't know. With Babylon secured, pressure was reasserted on Xerxes to avenge the defeat of Marathon and the Athenian sacking of Sardis. So this is what brings us into our chapter tonight. We're going to look at a slide, and this is a very important slide. We made it in order to make sure that you understand the timing of the related events in the book of Esther. Thank you, okay, so on Thank this you, next David. slide, notice the dates and the subsequent event tied to that date. In 490, we have the first Persian war with Greek mainland, that is the Battle of Marathon. In 486, which is chapter 1 of the book of Esther, oh. Esther 1-3. I'm sorry, a, that's 483 is chapter four, 1. Yeah, 483. Uh, is Esther 1-3, the third year of his reign, and we have the Vashti event. In 480, we have the Battle of Thermopylae and Salamis. Chapter 2 is taking place in 479 B.C. We find that in Esther 2-16, the seventh year of his reign, and Esther is taken to the palace. In 473, in the twelfth year, uh, it's the decree of annihilation. And then in 465, we have the assassination of Xerxes. So between Esther 1, which is taking place in 483 B.C., and Esther 2, which is taking place in 479 B.C., the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis were fought, and they are the historical backdrop for the events of our chapter tonight. Can you imagine that I threw a dinner party, and you read about it in a letter? And then we fought an American Civil War, but I don't mention it. And the next letter that I send, we're back at an event that you think is the day after the Ameri or day after the original dinner party, and it's actually a civil war has occurred. <laughs> well, this is not a civil war, but these are wars on the largest scale that have ever occurred between two world powers at this time. So the Battle of Thermopylae was fought on land and was led by Leonidas, king of Sparta. There are many admirable, thing, admirable things to say about the Greek coalition, and a few negative ones too. Yeah, like they're take this, Gerard Butler. <laughs> yeah. So they're recorded as exercising with each other naked, and uh, also braiding each other's hair in the nude. Yeah, how about so, that, smooth face Greeks? We're not endorsing that, but that is not as irrelevant to our class tonight. And legions of books and movies have been written or made on the subject of Greek valor. What is important for you to know is that in the land engagement, the Persians, uh, what the Persians were facing in their land engagement. So on our next slide entitled Spartan Hoplite Armor, you guys remember I was hearing or saying last week that they were the tank of their day. Yeah. We talked to you about the weight of their shield. What we did not tell you 
was that all told, it was about 70 to 90 pounds of armor, which could only be accommodated in Greek climates, not out in the desert. (laughs) This definitely gave an advantage to the Greek forces, and apparently the Persians did not learn from their earlier engagements in the Battle of Marathon. Additionally, the terrain of the Battle of Thermopylae did not allow the Persians to utilize their numerical advantage with any effectiveness. It's the whole thing about the hot gates. The Persians did, however, win the battle. Yeah, people, everybody forgets that. <laughs> and they crucified Leonidas afterwards. They achieved victory, but it came at a high price. Yeah, one historian summing this up on our next slide called Geography and Tactics, says Xerxes was guilty of an over-reliance on logistics and preparation and an under-appreciation for tactics, both in the wider sense of army movements and in tight situations on the battlefield. This over-reliance on logistics is an easy thing to criticize, but it also shows intelligence if not concern, genuine concern for the welfare of his men. It's true. And you never hear that emphasized. Remember something. The Persians were fighting over 1,400 miles from their capitals, cities. They had to bring the army. They had to equip the army. They had to feed the army. Ask the Russians how difficult that is right now. <laughs> Except they had to also come over land and sea which meant that they had to outfit the Navy and they had to provide food for the Navy. Tell me that this is not a monumental feat in the ancient world over these kinds of distances. In fact, what is mostly considered to be the world's second largest superpower can't do it with a neighboring country they're fighting with right now. (laughs) Historians argue over the intent of Persia in the conflict. They vacillate all over the place. Oh, they wanted to take all of Greece. Uh, That may or may not be true, but their stated primary objective was retribution on Athens for sacking the city of Sardis. What they mostly wanted to do was give Greece a black eye vis-a-vis destroy Athens. I want you to know Xerxes' army did accomplish the total destruction of Athens, so that's not a failure. While much has been made of the Battle of Thermopylae, the truth is the real turning point was a naval battle at Salamis. Most people don't seem to to grasp that. The land battle at Thermopylae featured a relatively small Greek force defending their homes from a larger larger Persian force. They used the bottleneck terrain to reduce the effectiveness of the numerical advantage of the Persians. Have you ever heard the expression, it's not the size of the ship that matters, but the motion of the ocean? Well, that in this case... That may not mean exactly what you probably think it means. (laughs) Similarly to the battle, similarly to the land battle, the naval battle at Salamis utilized a bottleneck in the coastline. This nullified the numerical advantage of the Persian fleet, but also it is notable that storms affected the Persian ship movement. Storms. In other words, the motion of the ocean accounted for at least one-third of Persian losses prior to the battle even beginning. All in all, the naval defeat of the Persians that forced them to retreat meant that they would have difficulty in resupplying their army. Once they 
had lost a naval battle, they were concerned that they couldn't continue to feed all of their soldiers. Thermopylae is almost insignificant. The naval battle is huge because it affected their ability to resupply their army. This was the ultimate reason for their eventual withdrawal. So again, here is a historian's comment on what we're talking about. This slide is entitled, Large Logistics and Tiny Tactics. <laughs> his meticulous preparations for the campaign in Greece show his ability for detailed logistics, one half of the necessary qualifications for a great commander. Unfortunately, he failed in the other half, battle tactics. When consulting with his commanders before Salamis, it is telling that he did not punish Artemisia. Somebody say Artemisia. Artemisia. It is telling that he did not punish Artemisia for her honesty, despite the obvious expectation of that from others in the party. How many of you know who Artemisia is? Amen. That's good. You're going to want to remember the name Artemisia for our session on chapter 5 that's coming in a few weeks because what you may not realize now is that Adonai's providence is at work in every detail of these battles. Artemisia was a woman and she was fighting for Persia. This is the only hint that we're going to give you at this time. <laughs> Lastly, if the storms had not destroyed Persian ships, then the entire story probably would have played out much differently. We, like all Westerners, greatly admire the Greek coalition. Except the wrestling naked and braiding hair part. Right, except for those details. That, that wasn't in the movie 300. <laughs> Convenient left, conveniently left out. We were also taught to revere the Greeks' battle strategy and tactics. But as believers, it seems to us that Adonai's providence had much more to do with the outcome. You guys want to hear about God's providence? Yes. This is Psalm 33. We're going to start in verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the... Yeah, he thwarts them. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. He can't be stopped. His plan will unfold. Picking up in 16. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. This was Persia's time to rule, and Greece would rise during the time of Alexander. Daniel foretold these events. Persia had to be limited in their success, and Adonai would not allow Greece to be eliminated. The Lord truly is sovereign over the affairs of men. Amen. As you're engaging with those scriptures in this thought, understand that the entire Western world has been taught that the military tactics were just that great. We celebrate the victory with the word Nike. Uh, I won't do it, but some of you are deluded enough to run, although nothing is chasing you for 26.2 <laughs> miles and feel yourself achieve an achievement. That goes all the way back to these battles and is a celebration of what we think of as our superior culture to others in the world. 
It probably had almost nothing to do with those things and was simply God controlling the order of the kingdoms and who would reign at what time, just as Daniel foretold it. If the victor is writing the history, how do we really know their tactics were superior and not just that it was providential that it happened this way and they recorded that it was their brilliance and their wisdom that did it? So on that note, as a reminder, you shouldn't think that Persia wasn't successful. They annihilated Athens. Our next slide is going to point to Persian success and Greek historical retribution. So in regard to the Persians, this first paragraph, the land army continued south, determined to reach Athens and take revenge. They ravaged the countryside, killing men and women at temples along the way, and eventually reached Athens. The Athenians fought hard in defense, but their numbers were far too few, and the Persians took Athens and raised it to the ground, burning all of the temples in particular. Now, this next section is something you should pay attention to. A century later, the sack of Athens still grieved the Greeks, and Alexander the Great destroyed much of Persepolis in revenge for that devastating act. You don't need revenge for a failure. They wanted revenge because the Persians succeeded in crushing them, and later when they came to power, they were still bitter about it. So as we prepare to read Esther 2, we now know the historical events that occurred between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. Saints, this should help you understand, help you properly color the passage as we read it. Xerxes could have mobilized against Greece again, But he didn't. Why didn't he? Well, there may be a multitude of reasons. Maybe it was his satisfaction with his home life after this chapter. (laughs) Probably. After all, he does spend the next 15 years on domestic affairs. Or perhaps it's that he accomplished his objectives abroad as his father had stated it, and he was now done with the matter and wanted to stay home. But in any case, it's probably best that we pray and that as a body we get ready to meet the royal bride as the scripture presents it. Amen. Amen. Who wants to pray for us this evening? I do. Mighty God, Lord, we love your word. We love every line of it, Father. And we're asking God, Lord God, that you would allow us to have circumcised hearts, Lord, that receive your word and be changed by it, mighty God. Lord God, we want to see the wonderful and beautiful things in your law, mighty God. So change us tonight. As a result of, it, of being engaged with your word, Lord, move us to obedience, Lord, and move us to do what we see in the scriptures. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, Guinevere, are you ready to read? I'm ready. Are you all ready to learn some things that I promise you won't read in other commentaries? Yes. Well, then let's read the chapter. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all those beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. 
Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into the exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and feature, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when, his father and, when her father and mother had died. When the king ordered the and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought into the citadel of Susan put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and it won his fate and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her to seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. But every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summon her by name. When the, t the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Ab Abahil, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month of the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet for all of the nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the province and distributed gifts with royal liberty. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept her secret, her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigfina and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who was in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence to the king. You would be hard-pressed to find a chapter more misunderstood than this one in the Bible. Perhaps Corinthians 12 is a close second. It seems 
that people are so entrenched in their own cultural mores that they're obtuse to the actual imagery of the Bible. And for that reason, I genuinely cannot recommend a single commentary on this chapter. So we're just going to jump right in to verse 1. Brother Linton. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Bashan and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Now you need to engage with this. You're good Bible students and familiarity is often uh, a breeding ground for contempt. What you think you know will keep you from learning anything. Remember, this chapter is occurring four years after the events with Vashti in chapter 1. Four years. So when it says, I quote, the anger of King Xerxes had subsided. He remembered Vashti and what she had done. You would think that would have had the opposite effect of subsiding his anger. You might even think that it would fuel his anger. That's because you didn't notice that the text does not say that he remembered Vashti and then his anger subsided. As if he had some kind of regret. That's not what the text says. It's actually the exact opposite of that. After his anger had subsided, he then remembered Vashti and what she had done. It's possible that we are, uh, at least partially speaking, about the anger he felt over the second invasion of the Greek mainland. His mind is not on Vashti. He is remitted from his anger, and then he focuses on what Vashti did about the time that he comes home and turns all attention towards domestic affairs. In other words, the anger, more likely than not, refers to events between his third year in office and his seventh year in office. In any case, whether the anger refers solely to Vashti or at least partially to the Greek issues, Xerxes has had a busy four-year period between these chapters. And the pressures and the demands of world events have some role in the disposition of a king. Nick's going to take us to another scripture, but I want you to engage this correctly. The way this is typically read is that he threw a hissy fit after chapter 1, and now he has a really carnal idea that appeals to any man. That is not the case at all, and reading it that way will keep you from understanding what God is conveying to you here. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Xerxes' actions regarding Vashti were made in a team, y'all. They were made in a team. A team, not just any old team. A team of wise men who understood the times. And they reflect biblical values in their decision. The effects of a disregard for the shalom, for the order of God, have far-reaching effects on society in general. You guys know something about that in our society today. And yet, it is not righteous to remain angry all the time. Amen. Somebody say praise God to that. Praise God. We have already indicated that it is likely the anger Xerxes was entrenched in 
related to the world events that transpired between these chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2. When that anger subsided, Xerxes' attention then turned toward domestic affairs, and Adonai had something beautiful in store for him. Yeah, he did. But Christian, Christian in this room, how often has anger shrouded your view from the beautiful things that God has in store for you? Too many times. That's a question tonight, isn't it? Perhaps today is time for your anger to actually subside. Amen. So that you can think rightly, you can think clearly on godly solutions rather than nurse your sin for an extended period of time. Somebody say amen to that. By the way, notice that the right godly solution in the coming verses is to gather the correct royal bride, not to lament the atrocious one. This is one of the many reasons that we focus on Abigail traits rather than focusing on Nabal traits in our spouses. We do not just gather a new bride. Rather, we make a righteous bride through edification and through these Abigail traits. Let's continue in verse 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of bachelor. Amen. This advice appealed <laughs> to the king, yeah. and he followed it. Okay, so this might make you laugh because it pleased the king. It appealed to the king. But once we get past our culturally driven laughter and our snickers, perhaps you might contemplate that no royal bride comes to her position without careful preparation. It's an honor to be selected, and you respond to that honor by actually preparing for the high calling that you receive. After all, the Greek word ecclesia for the church, it means the called out ones. Yeah. Surely every one of us must take our preparation time for the Revelation 19 event more seriously than we have up to this point. On that, I want you to hear Matthew 24, verse 44. So as you're thinking about your preparation as the bride of Christ, listen to Matthew 24, 44 through 47. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household, to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Thanks. Remember, Jesus made this statement immediately prior to teaching on ten virgins that were pledged to be married. All too often we are guilty of excusing ourselves from preparing to be the bride of Christ because we feel credited with it already as the bride of Christ. We've reached the goal. Thanks, unless you're a preterist, the wedding hasn't happened yet and you are still preparing. That is what Revelation 19 through 22 is all about. 
Why don't we pick up in verse 5 together, Brother Linton? Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Look, these verses, this, this specific verse 5 and 6, are pivotal in your understanding of the larger concepts in the book of Esther. Yep. There are a plethora of commentaries available for you to examine things like the grammatical construction of the Hebrew. Or if you're reading the LXX, the grammatical construction of the Greek phrasing in these sentences. And yet it's still debated. On the one hand, it looks like Mordecai was taken captive with Jehoiachin in 597 B.C. That would make Mordecai about 120 years old during this story. That is possible, but it necessitates a series of births late in life for Esther to be an appropriate marriage age in the text. We don't rule out those possibilities. In fact, I, I have often leaned towards that thought. I don't like that commentaries shy away from something simply because it's supernatural. The whole book is supernatural. On the other hand, if the person that was carried into captivity was Kish, the last one in the sentence, before the word who, had been taken in, then the ages of everyone involved fit neatly within conventional norms for the period. That is also possible, and it's the method that most commentators prefer to follow when examining the passage. Unfortunately, somebody say unfortunately. It misses a dramatic connection that is necessary to understand the story being conveyed in Esther. That's going to become eminently clear later in this chapter, and especially so in future chapters. Can I tell you a little bit about a correct reading of this? Would that be all right? We tend to take a third view. The naming of Mordecai's tribe as Benjamin and Shimei and Kish being among his forefathers seems extremely intentional to us. We think that the prominent members of Mordecai's genealogy are being named for a reason and are not necessarily his direct immediate lineage. This is common in biblical literature, and you can see it even in the genealogical records of the Christ himself. Read Matthew and Luke. In our view, the point of the list of ancestors is to draw your attention to the events of the men's lives in preparation for what is coming in the story and is not for the specific identification of which descendant entered Babylon on a certain day. In other words, when you read Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, the point is that the line went into captivity, not which man went into captivity. We'll come back to that and why these descendants are specifically named later in the evening. It's going to be very important to the interactions of Haman and Mordecai in all of the successive chapters. So that's something that you might want to look into, and we're going to help you see it as we move forward. Are you interested? That's the most technical and driest portion of our message tonight. But it's extremely important how you view that, and you may not have weighed the consequences to your casual reading of it. 
Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So when you're reading these verses, when you're reading this chapter, when you're reading any chapter in general that you're familiar with, it's easy to forget about the illusion of the first time. But if you're reading this in a serious fashion, and for the first time, this would prompt a question for you. The book is titled Esther, but Mordecai is being introduced before Esther's being introduced. Why is that happening? Why would the author write this way? Seems clear to us that the introduction of Mordecai into the story is to bring definition and clarity to the nature and the worthiness of Esther. This brings us back to the lineage example that we just talked about in the previous verses. You guys want to dig into that just a little bit? If these guys are not immediate ancestors of Mordecai, and we actually don't think that they are, then they were chosen in the word because they are prominent for very specific reasons. We're going to start this scripture string in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Let's unpack this. This is 1 Samuel 9, picking up in verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, Kish. son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, hmm. as handsome uh, a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Must be nice. <laughs> okay, so the reason that the author mentions Kish is because that is the home that the first monarchy of Israel grew out of. Of course, this comes with a negative association with Saul and his misconduct. The book of Esther allows that tension to be there intentionally because it becomes part of the story and will be resolved in future chapters. Yeah. Hey, what kind of negative tensions might there be? By mentioning that you're from Saul's line. It implies royalty, but what else does it imply? We're simply unable to restrain ourselves about the coming chapters. You can't help but give it away from the beginning. So Saul's great failure was impatience. And the refusal to execute Agag. But Mordecai will display incredible patience and will deal rightly with the descendant of Agag. Guys, just to make sure you're connecting the dots. To be clear, I'm helping you connect the dots. Illusion of the first time. So forget the idea that you've read this a thousand times and you hear a man introduced as the son of Joe Biden. Immediately positive things pop in your mind, right? Crack pipe! (laughs) Hooker! So Kish and then Shemad. 2 Samuel 16.5 is our next passage. As King David approached Bavarim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family, came out from there and his name was Shemad, son of Gerar, and he cursed as he came out. 
Guys, again, the reason that the author mentioned Shimei is because he was a member of the first royal family in Israel. But once again, there's a very negative association with him that the author of Esther intentionally leaves unresolved until later in the book. You have to remember, you don't know anything about the man being introduced. You're just hearing his lineage, and they're not amazing guys. <laughs> so with that in mind, we can simply or are unable to restrain ourselves. We can't help but give away a few hints about what is coming in Esther. Shimei's great failure was disloyalty to the sitting king. Ooh. He threw rocks at him rather than protect him. But Mordecai, man, Mordecai will display incredible respect, loyalty, and protection for the current sitting king in his day. Wow. Yeah. So anybody that is reading the book of Esther from beginning to end that also happened to be familiar with the Tanakh would likely see the book of Esther as correcting the errors of a family line and reestablishing the nobility and royalty of an esteemed dynasty by fixing the mistakes that were made in the past. Christian, not many of you came from truly noble stock. Perhaps the reason that you were chosen was to correct the mistakes of your forefathers and bring about a redeemed family line. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, the very fact that you're alive and that you bear the same last name as your ancestors is a chance to redeem the empty way of life that was handed down to you. Saul and Shimei were of royal descent, but they acted in a manner that was far from noble. Mordecai and Esther descend from their line and act in a totally noble fashion. Whether noble or ignoble, we have an obligation because of the blood of Christ to be both royal and Noble. Amen. Okay. I can't help it. I can't help it. We just got to give it away, guys. We, we got to get into this. You guys want to get into Shimei just a little bit? Yeah. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 9 and 10. Listen to this. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Yeah, But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? Guys, King David refused to let Abishai kill Shimei. And this is actually a really, really good thing. Because if King David... Ha, or if Abishai had killed Shimei, then there would never have been a Mordecai. Wow. There would have never have been an Esther to bring about the redemption of God's people in Esther. Wow. 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 
Come on. Let that sink in for a minute. On the other hand, consider that if Saul had killed both Agag and all the Amalekites, there may never have been an evil Haman to threaten God's people. The profound implications of these two scenarios, it's truly mind-boggling when you think about it. We're going to return to these in chapter 3 so that we don't get too far ahead of the text tonight. For tonight, what you need to grasp is that like any good author, the Holy Spirit is working into the text, the plot, the subplot, and even preparations for plot twists. But remember that we are still in the building stages of the book of Esther. This is just chapter 2. In Esther, before you are even aware of Esther and the story, you know that Mordecai is of royal descent, but the line is tarnished. You also know that Mordecai raised a cousin that was orphaned. This is an incredible hint that Mordecai is not like his ancestors. Come on. And it's only after you are told those things that you find out that the orphaned cousin is Esther, for whom the whole book is named. Okay, Peyton, pause for just a second. <laughs> you have to grab hold of something. Since you grew up in a Christianized society, as soon as you were exposed to the biblical culture, you already knew that Esther and Hadassah were the same person. But if you're reading this for the first time, you don't. You already know that Mordecai raised Esther. But if you're reading this for the first time, you don't. You have to have some appreciation for the ordering of these events and why and what it was meant to evoke in you. We're going to continue to dig into that. So James 1.27 says this, A religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Thanks, Mordecai would be a character that is somewhat questionable upon introduction because of his lineage. You're expecting bad things from him. But as soon as you found out that he took in a cousin named Hadassah, your heart probably would begin to warm towards it. You're wondering, who is this guy who cares for orphans? Then the next sentence reveals that Hadassah, this orphan, also happens to be Esther, for whom the whole book is titled. But you would find it out in that order. This would build anticipation to know how the tensions of the ignoble traits of the family line were going to be resolved in their lives. Truly, the Holy Spirit was masterful in this respect, creating something in us that is causing us to engage with the Word of God. As we move to verse 8, let's also consider that the people named in the Scripture who had name changes and a new name revelations are people like Jacob to Israel or Saul to Paul, who also happened to be from Benjamin. This also builds anticipation for Hadassah to become something great. You're anticipating that because there's a name change, God is imbuing something. In other words, how does Hadassah become Queen Esther? What did God do? When you're thinking through that, the ordering of these events was meant to cause you to want to read deeply. It was, cause, it was meant to cause you to want to engage. When we start off with a disgraced but royal family line, And then we find a noble action, taking in an orphan. And then we hear that there's a name change. 
Anybody who is biblically literate in the ancient world would be wanting to know what happens next. Okay? That's a far cry from the way that we hear these things normally taught. I'd like to engage with you for a minute about Revelation 3 and verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And, somebody also say and. And. I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, we're sharing with you a textual analysis that is beyond what most Christians experience. But it is because we want to build anticipation for you regarding the writing of a new name on you. When you see facets like this that are literary design, it's supposed to be that a a spring is coiling inside of your heart, can't waiting to see what's next and how it's going to occur. Again, unless you're a preterist, this hasn't happened for you yet. You don't have a name that nobody knows except the Father and the Son written upon you. We're going to pick up in verse 8, and this is about to get immensely deep. Are you all tired? No. (laughs) When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Wow, so her beauty treatments included a special diet. Does that remind you of Daniel chapter 1, maybe? Special diet? But apparently, in this chapter, in our chapter tonight, her special diet didn't involve any level of defilement. Compare and contrast that with Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1, there was some level of defilement in the special diet with the king. In Esther 2 tonight, there is no level of defilement in her special diet. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a moment. So often, Christians love to determine what they think the rules are for a given situation. Like a a box to check or a one-size-fits-all kind of mentality. It's very easy to miss the leading of the Spirit when you reduce the Holy Writ to a mere list of rules. It's actually just childish. There's no indication that the Persian royal diet required defilement. But apparently, the Babylonian diet did. Guys, we have to learn to go beyond superficial rules and become more concerned with our scriptural intake what we're, what we're, is our intake is on a daily kind of level in fact we would like to refer you back to a teaching that this church produced on daily diet in order to encourage the kind of maturity that it takes to handle these kind of situations that Esther and Daniel were in we have a slide for you Peyton's going to go over that slide. All right. You guys remember this? Yes. Yes. So the first thing we do in our daily diet 
is daily word from His presence. It doesn't start with food. It doesn't start with entertainment or any kind of distraction. Daily word from His presence. Two, daily led by His Spirit. You agree with me, but think about your day. How much of it was led by the Spirit? Come on now. Daily development being number three of your dependents and your disciples. Have you even talked to your wife today? (laughs) This isn't a sermon, but I want you to wrestle with some things. You can ask yourself hard questions. Number four, daily agreement between the Word and the Spirit. And number five, daily offering right sacrifices. That which pleases the Lord, not what sounds good to you. And number six, daily interceding for the salvation of others, starting with maybe people in this room. Amen. And number seven, daily repentance, Ooh. working the soils of your heart, asking the good father to reveal the things that are keeping Amen. you from him and then repenting of those immediately. I'm worried that the time change has gotten y'all. Uh, that's good notes on daily diet, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's not really our place in the text, but I feel the need to do this to get your attention again. Uh, I've heard a lot of discussions in this church over the last week, mostly among the women, and I have to say they have been funny, so yes. I'm not picking on you. They're, they're awesome. You've been reading Esther. You're engaging with it. And the question among the women, and praise God, they were married women I was listening to. So you girls seem to want to know, what did Esther do to cause her to have the kind of favor that she had to stand out among the virgins? Hmm. Like, how did that work? Did she have magical reproductive organs? Were, were her breasts just literally made of gold? What, what is it? I mean, it's, it's a reasonable question. Uh, we are going to answer that question for you tonight. But what I mostly want you to take note of right now, you ready for it? Not one of you has come even remotely close to answering the question correctly. And we're going to do it for you tonight. And it's going to be incredibly enlightening. It'll be freeing for you. Let's move to verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So Esther conceals her identity and her nationality, which allows you to examine her actions apart from her nationality. There's something beautiful that's being painted here. Later in the book of Esther, it becomes clear that Mordecai's nationality was known. Mm. The arrangement here, it allows for a kind of uh, blind taste test, a uh, blind sampling, if you will. And it poses an underlying question that can be asked throughout the book of Esther. Do you hate Jewish actions or do you hate Jewish people? Hmm. Seems like an odd thing to ask in our group. But it seems that the Psalms are replete with this specific question and an answer to it. I'm going to pick up reading for you in Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. 
Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. Hmm. The Jewish people are not hated because they are more evil than other nationalities. Right. They're all too often hated because they are Jews, simply put. The chosen people of God. Here in Esther, Esther's actions are universally received, and you're going to see that in the coming chapters. Mordecai, however, is the subject of disdain and hatred. Think about this for a moment. Both were Jews. Both held the same values and convictions. The only difference is that Mordecai was known by all to be a Jew, and Esther was not known to be a Jew. Once again, this is like having a control sample and an experiment. And all men would do well to undergo this test. <laughs> Every day, he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the ham to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Is anybody interested in the length of these beauty treatments and what that foreshadows? Yes. yes. Let's start with the obvious. The length of time is exactly double the display of Xerxes' grandeur in the opening chapter. In the opening chapter, there's 180 days to display the magnificence of his kingdom. Well, now he's spending exactly twice that time making sure that these girls are full of grandeur, and one in particular. What does this display about the hope of every truly spiritual husband? Shouldn't it, husband, be our goal to make sure that our wife shines twice as bright as we do? Yes. Come on. Ephesians 5.25 says this. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy. Amen. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church. Come on. You get that? His responsibility to present her to himself as radiant. Wow. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. <coughs> This might be the most understated command in the Christian world. Oh, yeah. However, in the reign of Xerxes, a Persian leader thought of as pagan, we see the kind of investment that every man should make in the character of his wife. Come on. So next, take a look at these, the investment in these beauty treatments. So the beauty treatments are a total of 12 months. That would be six months of anointing and six months of perfuming. How important is it that you prepare yourself for the service of your king and your husband? Its importance is in proportion to his grandeur. Listen to Matthew 25, starting in verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. 
No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Christian, we tell you that you are presently in the investment period. It is time to work on both the anointing and the perfuming in your own life. You might think of the anointing as the empowerment of the spirit. Come on. And the perfuming as the deeds and the lifestyle that you are learning to live for Christ Jesus. The groom of all creation will in fact have a bride that is royal. Listen to Revelation 21. I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am. This is so beautiful, and we we are learning this from the book of Esther. Listen to Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Who is the bride dressed for? Her husband. Her husband. She did not decide what to wear. No, she was clothed in the garment provided for her. So good. So in other words, the righteous acts prepared in advance for her to do. Amen. Look, let's pick up in verse 13 and this imagery will continue to build. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning... She would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgat, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubine. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the term came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his cousin, of his uncle Abigail, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Hagai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her come on. Well, saints, we may have teased the women in the church a little bit earlier. <laughs> we teased them because they spent their week postulating and pondering exactly uh, what about Esther or what Esther did to capture the favor of Xerxes. Now, as titillating and tantalizing as that discussion was, we already told you that you were wrong in advance. We'd like to break this down a little bit for you. Now, while Esther was probably great and amazing in the bedroom, somehow we doubt that that was the deciding factor in his choice. While she was probably exactly what he was looking for, somehow we just imagine that uh, Esther wasn't the only one who was accommodating to Xerxes and his desires. Yeah. Somehow we don't think that was the deciding factor. You already know that every girl was beautiful in the physical sense and untarnished, had not been used. So that could not have been the deciding factor either. So what was the actual deciding factor, Christians? The answer begins with the statement that Esther asked for nothing other than what was provided. So this means that Esther trusted in the Lord's equipping, not in manipulation and not in pre-planning. Well, wait, maybe say that again. (laughs) Esther asked for nothing other than what was provided. Wow. 
That means that Esther trusted in the Lord's equipping and not in manipulation and not in planning. She entrusted herself to Adonai in the process, believing that he would anoint her to succeed in her task. That's a good I just couldn't remember where in the word I had heard anything like this. It was, it was a very obscure thing. I had to dig all through the Dead Sea Scrolls and I didn't find it. I, I searched the LXX of the Older Testament and I could not find it. I went to the Targums of Jonathan and I could not find it. Where in the word does it address the attractiveness of a woman who does not give way to fear, does not manipulate, does not plan, and... And that that would grab the attention of even a lost person. And, you know, I'm thankful to have a good team. They're excellent researchers. And they discovered it in the extremely rare, hard-to-find book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 1. And I want to tell you the truth. If you tune me out, you might just shipwreck your life. Do not do it. If you understood this, you would have already known why Esther was irresistible to the king. And it's not because she was good in bed. It's not because she was accommodating. It's not because she had some unique piece of anatomy that no other woman had. It cannot be any of those things for a multitude of reasons. 1 Peter 3.1 Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husband. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. What? Behavior is attractive? Have you been baptized in carnal thinking so long that you have forgotten that the Bible teaches what attractiveness is? Are you letting somebody else define for you? What attractiveness is? When, verse 2, somebody say when. When. They see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Amen. What is it that this little Jewish girl could have that the other women did not have? Since they all had the same reproductive organs, what did she have that they didn't have? And why did we introduce Mordecai in the family lineage? We're quite sure that every virgin presented to Xerxes possessed the same physical equipment. But only one of them had a pure and reverent life that could be called beautiful. The reason that so many hypothesize incorrectly about this is that they are carnal. And still assume that the shape of a woman's figure is the predominant attractive quality in a woman. Mm. That is simply not what the Bible teaches. I fought hard to find another reference that would help me with that. (laughs) Yes, it's in Proverbs 31. (laughs) Which this book is meant to display. The other reason so many get this wrong is that they have pre- Assumptions about Xerxes that are biased. You don't like that he had many virgins. But you also didn't notice that in Matthew 25, the parable Jesus told is about a man who was pledged to be married to ten women. 
What's wrong with us? Your culture does not determine God's culture. The Bible determines it. He could have had any woman he wanted in the kingdom. He was looking for the one that exemplified shalom. Why? Because he had just got rid of one that would not. Vashti didn't. Esther did. What a difference it would make in the homes of this church if women agreed with the Bible about what actually makes a woman beautiful. Come on. I grew up in a, fa- a family full of physically attractive women that were little better than a gold ring in a pig's snout. And I have personally witnessed people glow with beauty that would not win a modeling contest in the world. But to the only ones that it matters, they are irresistibly attractive. And this is why. See, you think so lowly of Xerxes that you project your own worldly thinking upon him. There could be no better statement about him that you can bring him the most beautiful women in the largest empire in the world, all of them equipped the same. All of them untarnished. All of them eager to accommodate any desire that he had. And the one that captures his heart is the one that has a beautifully reverent life. It's almost as if Peter had read the book of Esther. Let's keep reading 1 Peter. If you don't get this down in your soul, then your life will continue to be plagued with things that Adonai never wanted you to be plagued with. 1 Peter continues in verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. What? I just need to get a lift. I need to get a stretch. I need to get some compression clothing. Or you need to change your heart. Change the way that you live. Change the way that you interact with people. I got to tell you, miserable is not attractive to anyone, no matter how you're shaped. Oh, my goodness. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty. Oh, come on, women. Do you want unfading beauty? The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. How many of you guys truly believe this tonight? Have you been conformed to the image of the world rather than the image displayed in the word of God? Are you not like Vashti? Are you not still believing that the most persuasive thing about a woman is her physical figure? Even if you're a woman doing this, man, it's like, I am sexiest. Now, you know what it really means? If you think that, whether you're a woman or not, you're sexist. You have degraded one half of the image of God into little more than properly shaped deposits of fatty tissue. 
I mean, that really is what it is. And ladies, you think that that's a problem that men have? The Bible says it's the opposite. The Bible actually says that a man will respond to your inner beauty even if he is a pagan. You got self-image problems? You need to get in the word. I bet you have a bigger spiritual problem. You just don't like the way you look? Well, number one, your husband should affirm you. But let's not wait for him to get right. You fix your thoughts about you, and that in and of itself becomes more attractive. Peter is writing what he is writing out of a knowledge of the cross and the book of Esther. And people don't see it because you are steeped in carnality. And it's Christian carnality. You think it's just false humility. You just think that it's being humble. It's not humble. It's an offense to your husband. It's an offense to God. It's an offense to all of us because we don't want to see you walk around that way. Let that inner beauty and reverent life be the most notable thing about you. And all of you become attractive in any shape or size. So at this point, you might be thinking something like, well, I understand what the Bible says on this concept, but I don't think my husband understands what it says. Ladies, that's projection. That's projection of your own issues onto your husband. Stop projecting your issues the way that you project those issues onto Xerxes in this passage before we explained it to you tonight. You see, the Bible is the truth. It doesn't contain truth. It is the truth. And the Bible is what says that a woman's beauty comes from that of her inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's that, so funny to listen to the girls talking about, like, what is she doing for him? Uh, yeah. The answer is so much more beautiful than anything like that. Okay, and trust me, if this was a guy's group, I would joke about this in whole different ways, but there are little ones in here. You are putting your emphasis on all the wrong syllables. (laughs) The unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit is actually what attracted Xerxes to Esther. That's the answer to the question. That is what makes any woman beautiful or not beautiful. So let's put it plainly. Help in, us, Pastor. In <laughs> Esther, the playing field was leveled in a sexual experience. They were all virgins. The playing field was leveled in sexual physical beauty. They were all beautiful. The playing field was leveled in sexual equipment, meaning anatomically, they were women. Yeah. So the beauty treatments were the same. The level of compliance on the part of the women was the same because he was the king. The basics of the physical activities were the same. If he could imagine, they would do it because he's the king. The difference was the biblical beauty of Esther that flowed from the unfading beauty of the (coughs) gentle and quiet spirit. Wow. She asked for nothing to take with her. She did not manipulate or pre-plan anything she trusted her god and that was beautiful even to an unbeliever 
how much more to those who do believe? Yeah, you can't imagine how unattractive yeah. constant anxiety and manipulation, and I'm just trying to help by planning every detail, is. You need to realize something. Your husband has no idea what he's doing. He's asking his husband, Jesus Christ. Amen. And constantly feel, filled with fear, manipulating because you feel out of control makes you ugly. But trusting that whatever you have, you don't need anything else. You have your husband and you have the Lord. That that is enough makes someone attractive. See, that, uh, that's better than 12 months in a spa. Yeah. Yeah. That's better than getting fat sucked out of your body or plastic put in it. Those things look ridiculous in older age anyway. But the Bible does make statements about this kind of character and the way that it never fades. Now, all of you would have agreed with us beforehand that those scriptures are true. And yet, I, I shouldn't say no one. Probably someone in the room got it. But I doubt that this was your first thought when you were reading about this. You see Xerxes as carnal, which we've been trying to destroy already. And then you personally, male or female, have carnal thoughts about what you think makes somebody beautiful. What would make them attractive to someone else? The Bible must define what you think is beautiful, and the Bible must define what you think makes a person attractive to someone else. It doesn't matter that there are many people living in disregard for God's word. You're the one people on the planet that have to exemplify God's word. That's not just true about one of you ladies encouraging another lady. It's true every time you look in the mirror about yourself. Yeah. We're the most affirmed people in the history of the world mm -hmm. and have the biggest problems with self-esteem of anybody in any of my travels anywhere in the world. It's because you don't actually believe the word of God. She did not have magical reproductive organs. She did not come up with some kind of Indian tantra that, that so wowed him. There, there is one answer. And it's found in our marriage teaching. It's, it's found in everything we do. And somehow or another, in a group of 200 people, I'm quite certain that you agree with me, but you could not have come up with it on your own. We're going to conclude with our last few verses in Peter. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Wow. I love the fact and hate the fact that Peter is rightly addressing a day and age where he's referring to the way they used to adorn themselves. Even in his day, this was being eroded. How much more applicable is it in ours? They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Once again, this is a concept that we're uncomfortable with, but what makes a wife radiant is referring to her husband as Lord or Master in her actions as well as speech. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. If you want to be crowned with favor, as Esther was. Does anybody in this room want to be crowned with favor? Come on! If you want to be crowned with favor, as Esther was, get rid of fear, manipulation, and planning. Spend your time in prayer, obtaining the beauty of a woman that actually trusts Adonai. 
and he will make you beautiful to your husband. Come on, somebody. That's a good word. In the same way that Christ does this with the whole church. As this is a revelation that we need to sink down into us. This needs to not float in and out of our ears through a Tuesday evening. I promise you, every one of you, both husbands and wives, this is something that we need to dwell on, that we need to learn to actually see, as Pastor said earlier. When you look into the mirror, too much of our worldview is defined as the world has taught us to view the world, and it must change to the Word of God. Hey, I want to I prove this to you. Is that all right? Yes. So I've been, I, I'm not always as articulate as I want to be, and I'm never as delicate as I should be. All of these women are built the same way. Some may have more fat in one area and others less fat in another. But whatever the king could possibly want, there's at least 127 varieties of it right there. And we've been making the point that they're all anatomically the same. And for that reason, they're also all virgins. They're also all accommodating. So it couldn't be any of those things. There are some people in this passage that are not anatomically the same. There, there is a man in this passage, more than one, but one I want to speak to you about for a second, who had his parts removed. Would somebody just read out loud Esther 2, verses 8 and 9, and then let's ask a question about it. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. And, yeah. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. What? 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 Are you kidding me? This guy that does not even have his reproductive organs, they've been cut off? Out of the 127 women that are there, at least, Esther found favor with him too? So it's not just a sexual thing? How is it that nobody noticed that? Because you've been taught to define it wrong. This guy could not have been sexually interested in Esther. He could not have simply been admiring her shape. That had nothing to do with him. Those parts were literally removed from him. But out of everybody in the kingdom that was brought forward, he liked her best. Why? See, these advertisements for this book, oh, there's plenty of sex and drunken parties and all, they're stupid. They should stop teaching. They don't represent Christ well. But we've been around this long enough that it's affected our thinking. Whether somebody had male parts or didn't have male parts, you know the one thing that they did have in common? That woman is attractive. More attractive than any other virgin in the kingdom. More attractive than every other beauty contestant winner. Why? Because she was a Proverbs 31 woman. You want to be attractive? Be a Proverbs 31 woman. That's how you become attractive. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in, in the 7th year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other of the women. Any of the other women. And now you know why. And she won his favor (laughs) and approval more than any of the other virgins. 
So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. Oh, this gets better and better, doesn't it? Xerxes was so pleased with what he saw in Esther. You know, there's really one thing that is truly rare among women on the earth. And it's not their physical appearance. You know, the rarest thing among women on the earth is the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what he saw in Esther. And that is what distinguished her from all the other virgins. That's the rare thing that that women have. The ESV actually says that once he found this rare thing, he suspended taxation. That's a miracle. No more taxes. Governments don't do that. I found something so rare that I'm not going to tax you guys for a while. The NIV actually says that he made a holiday. He made a holy day because he was so pleased that he found something so rare in this woman named Esther. We couldn't say this enough, guys. All women can have the same equipment. They can have the same beauty treatments for the same amount of time. But the only thing that makes one different than the other is the unfading beauty of a heart that truly trusts Adonai. Beautiful. Listen to Proverbs 31, because we've been talking about it all night. This is 31, 29. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. How do you think she surpassed it? Mm -hmm. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting. Mm. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works... Bring her praise at the city gate. What part of that is accentuating some physical attribute? Hmm. It's about her character. I just got to say it since we're on the topic. Say it. Young women in the room, stop spending all your try- time trying to craft your curves and start crafting your character. You're spending all your time getting ready for the presentation and neglecting the prayer- prayerful preparation that it takes to be beautiful before the whole world. Especially a bachelor who might be looking for a beautiful woman of God. And, and grasp this for a second. We are going to move on. okay? Because you thought you already knew this before you walked in, but you don't. You don't have it like you, you need it. All over the world and through different centuries, what is considered physically attractive is different. It's different everywhere. The Bible is universally true in all ages to all men of all times. And if you're still sitting there with the satanic thought, well, I know God's word says that and, and it's true, but, but my husband doesn't think it's true. Why would you agree with your husband against God? Why would you do that? How about you agree with God and let him change your husband? There are men in here that are shallow. They're juvenile and they're, they're juvenile of every age. That doesn't change the truth of God's word. You stand on God's word and he'll move the whole world. That's what I mean by Esther didn't manipulate. Esther didn't plan. She trusted that Adonai was enough. And that was beautiful. You stand on God's word and he will move the world 
for his bride. You know, Xerxes was so excited about this improvement over Vashti that gift-giving and liberality were an expression of joy over the royal bride. (laughs) While this will be true in every home in this church, it it is also a parallel with Pentecost in Hebrews 2, Uh 4. When he engages with the church, when they become betrothed, he suspends your taxation. You're not making offerings anymore. Not, not death offerings. Yeah. He, he gives you gifts to empower you to become even more Amen. than what he already fell in love with. How, how can we not see these things? I know what. It's all of the magazines in your market line. It's all the advertisements that you see. It is that you're baptized in carnal thinking. Okay? Ladies, I really expect you to stand up and get this right. And if you don't, then your husbands will probably lag behind. But if you will get this right, then Peter says they will get the revelation. But I do know a lot of husbands that have it right, and it's their wife that is the giant problem here. Ladies, it's not that you're unattractive outwardly. You need to come to grips with the more serious issue. You're unattractive in your character. You're unattractive in your expression of faith. You're unattractive in shalom. If it was something as simple as physical, well, then we'd just cake on more makeup or put on a different outfit. It's a much more serious problem than that. And it can change. Last week you learned about shalom. This week you're learning about what makes you beautiful. You know, when the king rejoices over his bride, I can't help but think that the whole world could come and drink from the river of life free of charge. And in Hebrews 2.4, it says, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. When the king is happy, he is liberal in showering gifts for those who would put their trust in him and stand on his word. That's what we're getting at tonight. I can hear that Prince song in my... (laughs) You don't have to be beautiful to be my girl. We want this to sink in to every home in the church because we are so influenced by a culture that is not biblically based. But in studying the book of Esther, the word is correcting the way that we are presenting ourselves and showing us how to prepare to be a bride that the king can rejoice over. And the result is he showers gifts liberally. Linton, pick up in verse 19 and 20 for me. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept her se- kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he when he was bringing her up. I think it was worth taking the time in Peter that we did because you can see Esther's continued reverent submission. One of the things that becomes clear as you engage with the book of Esther is that Mordecai acted like a father with constant instruction. That constant instruction prepared Esther to be a bride. And then he acted like a pastor to ensure that she would be a royal bride. (laughs) Come on now. Women, you need consistent discipleship in these areas because you live in a world that is at war with these principles and all too often we think like the world does. 
Men, you need consistent discipleship in these areas. Because you live in a world that is at war with these principles. That's right. And all too often you think like the world does. Why don't we pick up in verse 20 and 21, and we're going to see some of the fruit of what this produces. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bikana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Wow. Mordecai discovers the plot, and he is concerned for Xerxes. That is admirable. Xerxes is not a Jew. He's a Gentile monarch. Mordecai utilizes a disciple, Esther, and that disciple credits Mordecai. This may seem like a really small issue to you. Uh, I can see why it might not stand out. But in the coming chapters... It's the fulcrum that moves the king's heart when he discovers it. And the entire salvation of the Jewish people, and then consequently us, hinges upon it. We're going to revisit that in chapter 6 so that you really grab hold of it. Just to put it very succinctly, disciple, what would have happened if Esther had taken credit for what Mordecai gave? In all likelihood, the king probably would have spared her and the Jewish people would have been damned. Mm -hmm. All too often in this congregation and in the one association, I get tired of men hearing the same revelation for seven or eight years until they finally begin to realize what was said all along is right, and then they pretend that it was their own. Mm -hmm. Esther is an example of a disciple who can understand where something was transmitted from properly, and it produces salvation. Look, while we're just ad-libbing on this subject, Mordecai doesn't receive credit. It's written, but there's, there's no honor given him. Yeah. If he was an immature man and threw a hissy fit because he didn't receive credit, then there would be no revelation for the king later to realize that he had wronged Mordecai. I mean, on every level, the details of this book reveal God's hand. Uh, we have six minutes left, and there's something very important to get to. Uh, I want to start by saying you need to know that the kind of conspiracy that Mordecai uncovered, it, it was not unusual. It was not a joke. It's a serious thing. In fact, it's the way that Xerxes eventually dies. Okay? So we have another slide for you where we had fun with alliteration. <laughs> Castrated conspirators. <laughs> a prefect of Xerxes named Artabanus convinced the eunuch who served as chamberlain to the king's bedroom to conspire with him. And the two burst into Xerxes' room and stabbed the king in his bed. See, that's how Xerxes actually dies 15 years from this chapter. And he didn't die this time because of the faithfulness of a Jewish discipler and a Jewish disciple. Come on, that's kind of neat. Verse 23. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the animals in the presence of the king. Esther chapter 2 is quite a chapter. This is where we end tonight. And in our close, we have a slide for you guys. This is a slide of the timeline. It describes 
the timeline of Xerxes specifically with his bride. We're going to walk through this, but as we do, as you're observing this timeline, you just might get a revelation regarding Daniel's last week of redemptive history. You guys ready? So look at 486 BC. This is the very beginning of Xerxes' reign. Then in 483, we have Esther chapter 1, and it says the third year of his reign. But then just a couple verses later, it says, when these 180 days were over. We have a Vashti event. So three and a half years into his reign, or 42 months, or 1,260 days into his reign, we have a rebellion regarding a covenant in Xerxes' own home. Look at the next date, 480 BC. This is the sixth year of Xerxes' reign. During this time, there are battles with Greece. So in the sixth year, Xerxes is engaged in a great war with an emerging worldwide empire. Can you see the eschatological implications of this timeline yet? Look at the last point. This is 479 BC and year 7 of Xerxes' reign. Esther 2.16 describes this, the seventh year of his reign. This is when Xerxes was joined with his bride Esther. Her head was crowned and a banquet was held for her in her honor. Guys, this is beautiful. This is a description and a perfect shadow and type of what is to come. What we read about in the last few chapters of Revelation. What we read about about the last seven in Daniel and in his prophetic work. What does that mean for us? Church, like Xerxes' bride, you have the potential to be crowned by your groom. You have the potential to attend the banquet that he will throw for his beautiful bride. But like the virgins that we read about earlier tonight in Matthew chapter 25, only the ones who made themselves ready, only the ones who stayed on task, were able to participate in being crowned and participate in the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is true on several levels for us tonight as we close. Firstly, husbands, we have the task of becoming a beautiful bride for our groom. Wives, you also have the task of becoming a beautiful bride. But in the order of shalom, it's becoming a beautiful bride for your husband. This task, it involves displaying purity and reverence to the groom. Husbands, tonight, think on that. To think, think on your own purity and reverence that you are working on to display to your groom that is Jesus Christ. Wives, you as well, displaying purity and reverence to your groom. This is about displaying a gentle and a quiet spirit. Husbands, this is for you just as much as it is for your wives. Don't count yourself out of 1 Peter 3. Husbands, a gentle and a quiet spirit must be on display toward the leading and the direction of your groom, your groom Jesus Christ. 
how in the world do you think that your beautiful bride will continue to become more and more beautiful? It's from your example and how you respond to your groom, Jesus Christ. Lastly, husbands, we must put on display a submission to our groom and our master. Doing what is right and not giving way to fear. Not fear about today, not fear about tomorrow, not fear about the future. Setting that beautiful example that our wives can, are able to look at us. Look at our lives in the example that we are showing as the bride of Christ. And in turn becoming beautiful in and of themselves. Stand up with us tonight. Come on, in this an incredible time that we've had together? You know what's going to make it really incredible? It's for you to begin to put into practice the things that you've heard tonight. To smile and nod at another incredible teaching is not honoring the Word of God. But actually beginning to have a heart that wants to display exactly the principles learned. Both for the men, husbands, Wives, women, every person in this room to understand that it is about the purity and reverence of our devotion to the Lord, wives of your devotion to your husband as unto the Lord. To be able to not give way to fear and to do what is right in every circumstance is what the Lord has presented to us. See, what the Lord is doing is He's even this church here, he is transforming us right now. Husbands, if you can get a hold of this and know that you are representing the Lord, you are the Lord of your own home. And if we could stop being pleased with what we're seeing because we've determined what that beauty is in and of ourselves instead of going to the word. If we can actually cause our families to rise to exactly what the word says is the definition of beauty is the definition of submission and reverence. I think she's trying. Come on, husbands. That's on us to raise up to be that kind of leader in our home because we are turning and we're being more serious about doing the exact same thing for our groom. That we are following him as the word prescribes in the depth and the reality, not letting the world define what acceptable levels are, but actually going to the word. This is a serious, this is an incredible time for our church. I'm feeling both the conviction of the Lord and his assurity that he can make this happen inside of every one of us. Let's pray. King of heaven and earth, Lord of our lives, Lord, we thank you for your truth that sets us free. Lord, that unbinds the fetters and chains of conformity with the pattern of this world. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your truth and giving it plainly. Lord, renewing our minds, transforming our lives, giving us insight into your will and what you desire to form in us that you present us to yourself. Lord God, bring these words back to memory as we diligently review them. And let them continue to be displayed in the actionable steps of our own lives. 
for liberating us from a conformity and bringing through us your glory of how you want to display your name through us. Oh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching. But we thank you for the men that you spoke it through. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.